All right, please grab your Bibles again and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be. Well, how about uh, I pray and then uh, we'll look at what we have in the Word of God today. Father, thank you so much for your Word that you have provided. Thank you that we are able to uh, just feast on every word that has come from your mouth that you've given to us that we can be filled and be satisfied and grow in our knowledge. We would echo with Jesus that it is not by bread alone, but it's by every word that proceeds from your mouth. This is how we are to live. God, help us as we endeavor to understand your word and apply it. And we ask together that though I'm a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word today, but that you would anoint me to preach and that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the last message on giving from 2 Corinthians. And all God's people said, <laughs> that was a test. None of you said it. Good job. Uh, it's good for us to hear about this, isn't it? Um, though it is an extended question, basic or uh, extended section, basically all of chapter 8 and chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has been talking about giving and the importance of giving in the Christian life. And for these Corinthians who are being encouraged or coached along by Paul to give of their abundance, if there was any doubt left in their minds about being able to contribute to the mission in this way, Paul is putting it to rest here in this last section that starts with verse 8. You know, we are, we are really good as fallen people at coming up with excuses for why we shouldn't do things that God has called us to do, aren't we? And I think we, we feel this really keenly when we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a neighbor, to just someone God puts in our lives, and we know that this is the most important conversation we could ever have with this person. We know that this is vitally important. We know that God uses His people to communicate the good news of salvation to other people. And yet we instantly think of a million reasons why we shouldn't do it. Instantly we think of this reason, that reason, or the other. We're really good at thinking of excuses, especially when the calling that God puts on our lives touches on an area that we consider to be ultimately personal. In evangelism, oh, that's a good friend. I don't, I don't want to lose that friend, God. Or a family member. We know how personal that is and how risky and dangerous it feels to do such a thing. And yet we know the calling of God, don't we? And the same with giving. We, we know that well, finances are personal, aren't they? And for God to call for us to give out of the abundance of what we have, well, that's, that's personal. Yet it's what God has called us to do. Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, really wasted no time in getting to the heart of the issue at the start of this section. He said, Many Christians are ruled by a desire to be secure financially. For this reason, they do not put godliness first in their lives. And for this reason, they have anxiety about money and giving. Many Christians do not give much or in the right attitude because they are afraid that there will not be enough money left to pay the bills. Regardless of the admonitions of Scripture and the testimonies of dedicated Christians, they still are not convinced that they can do it. 
It's true, isn't it? And as I talk about these things, I don't want you to have in your mind that I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm preaching to me, too, because this is for all Christians, and I'm a Christian, too. And uh, just like many, many of you, it does hurt to give, doesn't it? Well, it's kind of like when you're learning to swim and that, that dreaded diving board. Many of us can remember the first time that we tiptoed out onto the diving board and how fun it looked from over here <laughs> and how not fun it looks from being on the edge and having everyone around you saying, go, go, go. Having put a couple of our children into, well, all three of our children into swimming lessons now, I've gotten to relive this a little bit through their lives of just how scary it can be to jump in. It looks so fun from the side. You have the kids that are just fearless doing the cannonball and splashing everywhere, and it's so fun. But when it's your turn, it can be pretty scary. Well, I think the same could be said about jumping in to the Christian life. We can often look at it from the outside and say, that looks so fun, but when it's our turn to jump in, and when God brings us to this moment where it's our turn to participate in one way or another, it can feel like we're out there on that diving board. But the only way to grow is to go, and that's what God's calling us to consider here this morning. Let me read verses 8 through 11 for us again. I love, love, love verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Well, I want us to look at the end of verse 8. You'll notice that Paul here touches on something that's not just financially related, but he says this, he uses this term, every good deed, every good deed. I want us to start there. As we consider how we are called to give as Christians, we need to start with the big idea of good deeds in general. Good deeds are central to Christian living. Good deeds or good works are absolutely central to the sanctification that is set before us as believers in Jesus Christ. We could say that good deeds has to do with repudiating the evil ways of the fallen world, repudiating sin, and embracing that which is good as God has revealed it to us. Good deeds are embracing those things that God has called good, whether that's in believing or acting or, as is the case most of the time, in both. The way that we live our lives based on how we believe, good deeds are rooted in what God has called good. And one of the greatest places that we can see this in the whole New Testament is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Very familiar passage, but let's really consider the order that this is put in that as God gives it to us here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works are God's design. Good deeds are God's creation. And we, as Christians, are God's workmanship. Isn't it amazing how we are saved, not of works that we have done, but completely, totally of Christ's work alone, of the grace of God. And yet, we find out as we come to believe in Jesus, and God changes our hearts, that God has prepared beforehand good deeds for us. And it has to be in that order. It's very important that we keep that in its order. There are some out there who say that salvation awaits you at the end of your good works, or that grace is achieved through your good deeds. Well, then grace is no longer grace, right? At that point, grace ceases to be grace. We are saved totally and completely of God's grace. And because of that reality, we are now set on a path to perform good deeds for God from a heart of worship. Another passage that shows this that we don't often think of is Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great verse. Verse 14, who, got, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The first verse of that passage said, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Christ has come and he has died in our place for our sins. And for all of those who believe in Jesus, you are now one of those people that God is purifying for himself to be zealous, energetic, enthusiastic for good deeds. That's the order. We as God's people, those who have been, past tense, have been justified by God. We have a responsibility now to mortify sin. That means to, to kill sin, to be killing those sin habits. And we have the power to do so because of the Spirit of God. We have a responsibility to cling to God. We have a responsibility to perform good deeds as He has outlined them, as He has revealed them to us in Scripture. And He's given us, I mean, it can't be understated. He's given us the power to do it. That, that was the problem for those who are under the law, for those who are under law, it gives them all these demands, but it doesn't, doesn't give them any ability. That's a problem, isn't it? Yet for those who are in Christ, yes, we receive commands from the Lord Jesus. We have imperatives for us, and we also have the power to live them out. We have the power to live for God because of His work in our hearts. So we must understand this basic reality that we have to be born again if we are to do good for God. You cannot do good for God. You cannot submit to God. Romans says you cannot please God if your mind is of the flesh, if you have not been born again. It's an impossibility. It's a total inability to please God. But for the Christian who has been saved, who has been justified, who has been born again to a living hope, this is your calling to do good for God. And He makes you able to do it. 
Furthermore, we should consider how every good deed that we do as Christians is a matter of giving. We're going to be obviously talking about financial giving that's found here in this passage, but whether it's financial or some other matter of service, every time you as a Christian do a good deed for God, it requires that you give, doesn't it? You know, the Bible calls you a slave. We don't really like that word these days. But the good news is your master is Jesus. You are slaves of Jesus Christ, and he's the perfect master. But what do slaves do? They give, they give, they give. And whether it's your time, your treasure, or both, giving for God and performing these good deeds that He has called us to is always a matter of giving. The Corinthians' good deed that we're looking at here in chapter 9 was a one-time fundraising event. This was a singular fundraising event that they were going to have for the saints in Jerusalem. It wasn't their weekly giving that was in view. It wasn't any other regular act of service. It wasn't mowing the church lawn. That is a joke. It wasn't uh, (laughs) any other kind of regular service that they could perform, like serving in the nursery or being on the greeting team or something like that. It didn't have to do with their weekly offering that they would drop in the box or anything of that nature. It was a one-time event. But do not overlook this fact that those mundane, week-in, week-out part of your just rhythm as a Christian, those good deeds are still good deeds, aren't they? They are still matters of giving. However, you are serving, if you are truly serving with a heart of faith, it is still giving, either of your time or your treasure or both. This is our calling as Christians. We are called to be giving in good deeds. And in our calling, we find out, we discover that God's grace is what enables all of this. And truly, God's grace is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? God's grace is limitless, and it keeps on giving. We are now agents of grace as Christians to give as He has given. We are to reflect the heart of God. We are enabled to imitate our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, though He was rich, became poor for our sakes, that through His poverty we might be rich. What did Jesus teach us in Matthew chapter 10? He says, Freely you have received, freely give. That's the calling on the follower of Jesus, is to freely give, imitating the heart of God. God gives liberally, He gives generously, so that we may also give generously. Philip Hughes, in his commentary, says that liberality is not a means to, but rather an outward expression of righteousness. So as I was saying, it's not to earn salvation that we reflect the heart of God. It's not to earn anything from God that we reflect His heart. But it's because we have received salvation that we now desire to be generous as God is generous. And as saints, we grow in holiness, and giving is central to that. Because that's the character of God, isn't it? God is full of grace, and grace gives. Grace gives gifts. And as Christians, that is so central to our growth in Jesus, to be givers, even as God is a giver. But God does not leave us on our own. He supplies all that we need for giving. And that's what verse 8 is all about. I really, really enjoy verse 8. It was like studying this passage, preparing this sermon, it was like seeing verse 8 for the first time all over again. I love it when that happens. And this is a treasure of a verse. 
God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Oh, I love how that starts. God is able. God is able. What a powerful short statement that is. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. It's a word we talked about in my Sunday school class today. It means to have all power. God is an omnipotent God. And how often we forget this when we are living in the weeds of life. How often do we forget God's power, God's ability, whenever we are just so consumed with the things of this world? But do not forget it. You cannot forget it. That the God who saved you demonstrated then when He saved you, and He demonstrates over and over and over again that He is able. He is able to do all things according to His will. Consider how the Bible speaks of the omnipotent grace of God, how the Bible speaks of the ability of God. Back in Daniel, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they were faced with the fiery furnace. They declared to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, who wanted to put them in that fiery furnace, they declared to him that their God was able to deliver them out of the fire. And in the very next chapter, we find that king, Nebuchadnezzar, declaring that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And he was speaking from experience, by the way. He found out rather quickly that God is able. In Matthew 9, verse 28, these two blind men who came to Jesus for healing, he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do it? And they said, yes, Lord. And they were healed. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says that Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. In Hebrews 11, we find out that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He had faith that God was able. Romans chapter 11, Paul says that God is able to graft Israel back into his kingdom program. In Romans 16, Paul says that God is able to establish us according to the gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ. One of the most marvelous verses in the New Testament, Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than anything we ask or think. God's able to do far more abundantly than you think. What a statement. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says that God is able to guard what I've entrusted to Him until the day of redemption. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that because Jesus was tempted, Jesus is now able to come to those who are tempted to give them aid. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. In Jude, the end of his short one-chapter letter, he says, God is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Is God able? I mean, think of all of those verses that talk about the, the gracious, powerful ability of God. He is able, it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, to make all grace abound to us. Where does God leave you lacking in this? Where does God leave you short? He is able to make all grace abound to us. He supplies all that we need for everything. That's what this verse says. Isn't this amazing? He's able to give us all sufficiency for every 
good deed. Not one good deed that He has called you to will be left out. He gives you all sufficiency for all things that He has called you to do. Specifically, it says in this verse that He is able to supply enough grace. And in their case, it was to give. It was to give to this contribution but also to do good deeds, as we see at the end of the verse. He is able to supply enough grace. How does that happen? How does God supply grace to us continually? I think we could all probably get it in the gospel. We understand the gospel is a message of grace. It's the work that Christ has done, not the work that we do. But how does He continually supply grace to us in the Christian life? Well, briefly, let me give you three ways where I see God supplies us grace. First is in the preparation that we have in the Word of God. The preparation in the Word of God. You know that good deeds, good works in the Christian life don't just happen. You are hearing from God in His Word. You're growing closer to God through hearing Him speak in the Bible, and you are preparing for every good work. Let me share with you a couple of passages that illustrate this point. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And catch this, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How are you equipped and prepared and ready for every good deed that God has called you to? It's through the Word of God, through Scripture. Another amazing verse on this is Acts 20, verse 32, where Paul said, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. What an amazing term. The word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of God is a word of grace. And the word of God has ability. It is able to prepare you, to equip you. And it's for our sanctification that we would grow in holiness, grow closer to God. So first... Our preparation in the Word of God is where grace is supplied, but also we have grace supplied in our outlook, in our worldview. There is grace given to us as we grow in Jesus to cause us to desire to give of ourselves more and more. You know that the Bible says that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate giver. He's the ultimate capital G giver. And when God is working in our hearts, producing Christ-likeness, making us more and more like Jesus, He is giving us grace to give more and more. In Colossians chapter 2, it says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is in us to will and to work. It is God in you, willing and pushing you along. Is that not grace? That is the grace of God. He is supplying grace as He works in us for every good work as we work out our salvation. So in our preparation in the Word, in our outlook or in our worldview, as He causes us to desire to give. But thirdly, I want to add this too. He supplies us grace in the moment. You can have this theory that you get from the Bible of what is good and how to do good deeds. You can have the desire in your heart to want to do those good deeds, to want to participate, to want to give of yourself, to reflect your Savior, Jesus Christ. But then there comes that moment where you're at the edge of the diving board. Then comes that moment where it's time. 
Then comes that moment where perhaps you're surprised to find yourself on the edge of the diving board because that wasn't in your plans for today. But someone called, someone sent a text, you ran into someone out at the store, and all of a sudden, it's good deed time. All of a sudden, it's time for a good work. Well, God also enables the doing of good works by His grace as we are led by Him. It is such a grace to be led by the Holy Spirit. Not just conformed in our hearts day by day, generally toward godliness, but also moment by moment in each of our unique contexts and the specific things that you're going to go through the rest of today or tomorrow or the rest of the week, the specific people you're going to talk to, to be led by the Spirit, to have that conversation or to give to that person in some way, to touch that person with the love of God as an agent of His grace. Is it also not grace that we are led by the Spirit? It certainly is. It certainly is. And notice verse 8 tells us that in God's grace, we have all sufficiency. He has given us all the grace that we need, and He never sells us short. C.K. Barrett, in his commentary, says, The sense of the verse seems to be that if men are willing to give, God will always make it possible for them to give. Isn't that a sweet promise? Men are willing to give, God will make it possible. And Philippians 4.19 is a wonderful cross-reference to this verse, where again, the Apostle Paul writes, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He can supply because He has riches, riches in glory that we have access to in Christ. So God gives us enough grace, doesn't He? But He also gives us an abundance. It says in verse 8 that it's not just enough. Verse 8 says that He is able to make all grace abound so that we may have an abundance. This isn't to be thought of as God giving us last-minute, exact-change grace. You need $14.19 of grace? Well, there's a 10 and a 1 and a 1 and a 1 and a 1 and a dime and a nickel and a penny and a penny and a penny and a penny. No. He gives us an abundance, an overflow. He gives us extra. That's what this word means. It's not just enough, but He gives us more than enough grace. There's an overflow of God's grace that comes to us and flows through us. This is really, really good news. We get to live in the infinite storehouse of God's grace. What an amazing thought. God has no end to His grace, no shortage of His grace, no lack of depth in His grace. God is abounding eternally as the gracious God. And we all have access to the full grace of God through Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 10 also we get this idea where it's talked about multiplication and increase. It says that God will multiply your seed for sowing. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. He gives us this multiplication, this increase in grace for living out the good deeds that we're called to do. Now, when you hear usually a preacher talking about multiplication or a preacher talking about increase, Sadly, much of the time, 
It's a false teacher talking about how if you just sow a seed of a little bit of money, he will increase your money and your bank account will shoot up. Is that what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians? Well, this is why it's so important that each one of you is like the Bereans that we read about in the book of Acts, where you are equipped to study the Bible for yourself, to look at the context of the Bible for yourself, and to say, wait a second, that's wrong. Because look with me back at chapter 8, the chapter just before this, same audience, same topic. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 14. Paul says to the Corinthians, at this present time, your abundance is a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. When we went through that passage, I highlighted how Paul is saying here, that today you have an abundance. And out of your abundance, you are able to supply for those brothers and sisters in Christ who have need. But there may come a day when their abundance supplies for your need. If Paul was set on telling them, hey, just give a little bit and God will grow your bank account, this verse wouldn't exist. He holds open the possibility that one day they'll be in the same situation as the Jerusalem saints, and we can provide for each other to let there be equality. Not for a get-rich-quick scheme. That's not what the Bible is, and any teacher that treats the Bible that way is a devil and a liar. There are many wolves out there in sheep's clothing who tell you things you want to hear. They scratch your itching ears, and they're wrong. They're deathly wrong. And so what we do is we read Scripture in context and we say chapter 9 verse 10 is not talking about an increase of our personal riches, but instead, what is it an increase of? It's an increase of God's grace. How are we sowing in righteousness out of God's grace? What are we reaping in this, this whole process of sowing and getting to the harvest? We're not reaping earthly riches we're reaping more of God. We're reaping more of God's grace. We're reaping all of the blessings that God has for us that are eternal, not fading away. Not silver and gold, but the unfading, imperishable inheritance that is laid up for us in Christ. That is what we're reaping more and more of, the blessing of God and the knowledge of His grace. The promise is this, if God calls you to it, He will see you through it. Didn't have to rhyme, but it does. If God calls you to it, He will see you through it. There is abundant grace for you, Christian. That is such good news. And what Paul is doing here in verse 10, again, chapter 9, verse 10, is he's echoing Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, talking about the Word of God, it says, as, as rain comes from heaven and it supplies the ground so the gr ground will sprout and it'll provide food for the eater, so the Word of God will not return to God void. That's an amazing passage, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. And here he's using that same theme. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is calling them to keep investing in the mission. He's also echoing Hosea. This is Hosea 10, verse 12 where it says, sow with a view to righteousness, not sow with a view to your bank account growing. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground. 
For it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. What an amazing verse. Consider the power of this illustration of sowing and reaping, of sowing and getting a harvest. God supplies more and more of His powerful grace through this cycle. Because what happens when you scatter seed and it comes up and you have a harvest? Well, now there's more seed, isn't there? The harvest creates more seed for the next season, for the next sowing cycle. And so we're learning here that this paradox, an amazing paradox, is that true giving actually causes growth. We tend to think naturally in our flesh that when we give, that's a loss. That's red negative on the sheet. No, actually, God's telling us here, true giving causes growth. Consider just this one aspect. The more that we give of ourselves, whether that's your time, your treasure, whatever it may be, the more you give, the more you get to rely on God as your provider. How how do you get to lean on God as provider when you're building up, hoarding, protecting all your riches? We get to appreciate this aspect of contentment. Paul talks about this a lot in Philippians 4. Whether he's got much or he's got little, he has learned the value of contentment and trusting God for whatever the future holds. And we learned last week this principle back in verse 6 that when we give, God does bless. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. When we give, God blesses. We are stewarding God's seeds. You recognize that, right? That when you give, you're not giving your stuff. The song we sang, one of my favorite hymns, Take My Life and Let It Be, it says, uh, not my silver or my gold shall I withhold. Well, it's not ours to begin with. There's someone out there who has said, it's not much, it's not how much of my money I give to the Lord, but how much of His money I want to keep for myself. I think that's a much more balanced view of giving, isn't it? It's not about how much of my stuff I want to let go of. It's how much of His stuff I want to hold on to. A much more biblical view. When we sow the seeds that He has gifted us in grace, we imitate Him and reap a harvest of more grace for the next sowing cycle and for the next harvest. When we give, God blesses. There's just no doubt about it. He equips us to give for His glory, and we need to really consider how we think about that which He's given us. And so finally, understanding that we are called to give and that we are equipped to give, I really want us to dwell on the blessings that come from this. I've mentioned it all throughout the sermon, God blesses when we give. Well, let's consider how that happens. Let's pick up in verse 12, where it says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession and of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. 
So let's consider the blessings of giving. And let's start with the obvious, the impact on other people. There is a blessing to be found in our giving and the impact that it has on other people. Our giving will have great impact, and you have to believe that as a Christian. There are some people, I'm convinced, that don't give because they think God could never use little old me. God could never use me with this little thing that I'm doing. But you have no idea the ripple effect from just a small stone thrown into the pond. You have no idea how God would use your contribution, no matter how small you think it is. You, you just don't know how God will use it. But you can guarantee on this, you can totally bank on this. When you give it to the Lord, He will use it. You may not know how, and in this life, you may not see the effects of that. In fact, even into eternity, you may never even find out how God used it. But you can rest assured that God will use your good deeds. He will use your giving. And we see it here in this passage in verse 12 by supplying for the needs of the saints, the impact on others. We can start with this, that their giving supplies for other saints' needs. These Corinthians were able to meet other Christians' needs instead of their own personal wants, and that was a blessing. The Corinthians had an abundance. They could have used that abundance for all sorts of things. We, as Americans, have an abundance, and we use our abundance on all sorts of things, don't we? And we can think of all the things that we haven't spent it on yet that we want to spend it on. Uh, we, we all think that way to some degree or another. But Paul here is reminding them that, that by their giving, by their sacrifice here, they were actually a blessing to others by fully supplying for the needs of the saints. A very obvious blessing of giving, a very obvious impact on other people. But notice that this passage goes on. It has more of an impact. It creates thanksgiving. Look at the end of verse 11 and the end of verse 12. At the end of verse 11, it says that your gift to the Corinthians is producing thanksgiving to God through us. So Paul and his missionary companions were praising God and thanking God for his work, and it was because the Corinthians were giving. That's pretty amazing. And in verse 12, of course, those who receive the gift are also going to thank God. It says that your gift is not only supplying their needs, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Those who receive that gift are going to, in turn, praise God and thank God for His provision through them. Wow. Paul counted a blessing of giving the fact that he would praise God he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to see what you've done, and I'm going to praise God, and that is one of the blessings that comes through your giving. So you, Christian, as you give, and however God has called you to give, whatever God brings you to, as you participate in that, know this, other Christians see that, and other Christians are praising God for you. And you should count that as one of the blessings of giving, one of the blessings that comes with good deeds. In verse 13, we see, too, that they will be glorifying God. So not just supplying for the needs of the saints, not just creating thanksgiving, but glorifying God. These Jewish converts, those in Jerusalem who were raised Jewish, they are ethnically Jewish, who are now believers in Jesus Christ, they're going to thank God for these Gentiles. They're going to glorify God for Gentiles. Now, how amazing is the church that it can take someone like a Jew and make that guy praise God for a Gentile? Because how much of that was happening in the Old Testament? 
How much of that was happening in Israel before Christ came along to create a new man where Jew and Gentile are one in Christ? That wasn't happening. But how amazing it is in the church that they receive support. The Jews receive loving support from Gentiles and glorify God. And they glorify God for two reasons, it says in verse 13. First, because their action matches their confession. The Jews would, the believing Jews would thank God for these believing Gentiles because not only do they profess to know Christ, but they're showing it by their actions. I think that's a good goal for us. In your prayer life, it, it might be, I don't know, maybe an exciting new thing for you to think about the people in your church or the, the Christians that you know whose actions are matching their profession. People who a year ago, five years ago, weren't walking with the Lord, but have since made a profession of faith, and not only that, are living for God and thanking God for that. And just between you and the Lord. Now, if you want to write them a note too and say you've observed it and, and you're, you're encouraging them through that, that's great too. But make it a part of your praise to God that you are seeing His work in the lives of other people. But also they will be glorifying God, it says in verse 13, because the contribution is generous. They will be glorifying God because they were supplied with an abundance through the generosity of these Corinthian believers. So many blessings come to others through our giving. But there's also an impact that our giving has on ourselves. And I'm not saying this to motivate you to give so that you can be blessed yourself. If that's your motivation is to get something and that's why you're giving, That's really not true giving. But we can all still take an honest look and honestly recognize that there will be an effect on ourselves, right? Through our giving, there will be an effect. God is going to do something in us and to us through our participation in the gospel this way. Look at verse 14 with me again. It says in verse 14 that these Jewish believers who are receiving the contribution, they will be praying for the Corinthians, and yearning for the Corinthians because of the surpassing grace of God in them. When we give to others, when we bless others with giving, this generates prayer and a desire for fellowship. It it grows us closer together. When we take care of the needs of someone else and we do so truly giving as an act of grace, it actually grows us closer together. There was a a man in our church in Sedalia, Missouri, that when Melissa and I were first married, before we had kids, and we were in college, we would come back to visit about once a month. And I knew after a while, after it happened a few times, I knew that when I saw that man and I'd go up to him for a handshake, it wouldn't just be his hand. There'd be a folded 10 in there, sometimes a folded couple of 20s in there. And he would just do that. And he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want praise, but he would do that. Now, in my subsequent visits, I was always very excited to go shake his hand. (laughs) And that's, you know, not because he's my bank now all of a sudden. He's my ATM or something like that. But I grew in a heart for him than I would have had otherwise. I, I yearned for him more, truly, not just for the gift, but because... He cares enough about me to bless me in that way. And, and I had a desire for fellowship with Him. I had a desire to know more about Him. And that's what happens through our giving. God uses our giving 
to be a blessing even on ourselves. How much more often I would remember him in prayer because of his involvement in my life in that way than I would have otherwise. I mean, it's a church of a couple hundred people. I could have easily forgotten about him. But I'm still talking about him today, aren't I? Another blessing that comes to us, another impact on ourselves, is we are enriched. Look at verse 11 again. We are enriched in the here and now through the generous giving. Paul gives them this promise. You will be enriched in everything through all liberality. Another amazing paradox. Giving makes us rich. Our flesh says that can't be, but that's what the Word of God says. Giving makes us rich. The testimony of Scripture is also that dying to ourselves, dying to the world, brings us life. How can dying bring life? This is God's way, isn't it? And this might be a faith issue for some of us. We may think cognitively, yeah, when we give, that will enrich us. But do you believe that in your heart? It's a faith issue. It really is a faith issue where you have to let go of something, recognizing it's not yours to begin with. Is there really joy in participation in the gospel? Yes, there absolutely is, and you will be enriched. And not only enriched here and now, but verse 9 seems to indicate that we are also enriched for eternity. Paul here is quoting Psalm 112, where it says, He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, verse 9. We learn here in this psalm in its original context, and even as Paul is using it here, that our devotion is preserved by God's grace. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Psalm 112, on this verse, said, His liberality, God's, or sorry, the man of God, his liberality has salted his righteousness, proved its reality, and secured its perpetuity. He, no, one, no one writes like Charles Spurgeon today. What an amazing statement. The man's liberality has salted his righteousness, proved its reality, and secured its perpetuity. God won't let the good works you do in His name, the giving you do in His name, fade away for all eternity. There will be a preservation of this devotion to God. Again, it's something you have to believe if you're going to participate in these good works that God has called us to. Recognizing that God Himself, the God of grace, is the source for your actions of grace. Because He is the source, He's not going to let what He has generated in us fade away, but He will preserve it. The righteousness will endure forever. Well, all of these blessings, whether it's an impact on someone else or a blessing on ourselves, it really is all of God's grace, isn't it? And Paul concludes this, the last verse of chapter 9, verse 15, with this amazing declaration that salvation and its fruit, participation in giving, what God does through giving, God's great blessings, it's all an indescribable gift. And praise be to God for this inexpressible gift of grace, that God would save us, that God would call us, that God would equip us, and then use us to bless others. How indescribable is that? I mean, if you wanted me to draw it out and mechanically show you how it all works, I can't. It's indescribable that God would pluck people out of the world, cause them to be born again to a living hope, and use them to bless others with a blessing that will last into eternity. How inexpressible. 
But it all starts with the gospel. It all starts with our initial faith in Jesus that enables us to do good deeds. And we will grow in this giving as we continually consider that gospel, as we continually grow in faith in what Christ has done. I want to close this sermon and you could say this section by going back once again to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, this amazing, this amazing verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this inexpressible gift, the gift of salvation through the gift of Jesus Christ. He is a gift to us. And we thank you that he is a gift that cannot, will not be lost. That you have come to us imparting salvation and righteousness to our hearts and that you've given us a future and a hope. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us, but that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. God, help us to live for you, to see with your eyes, to give with your giving heart, to be a blessing to others, totally out of grace because of what you have done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.